This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Anon Girardas. I am so, so happy to see you right now. The Persuaders is your new book. It follows your national bestseller, Winners Take All. I think there's a little bit of a connection between these two books. I'm going to let you set it up for listeners. But The Persuaders is a really hopeful book in a very strange moment in our country. And would you introduce this new book to listeners, please? Yes. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, and, and hello to Barnes & Noble people around the country. Um, you know, I actually think one of the reasons I was excited to have this conversation of the many conversations that I'm that I'm having and going to be having over the next few weeks is Barnes and Nobles is in all kinds of communities. It's everywhere in this country. Barnes and Noble is a physical space that brings together people who do not necessarily share values, share ideology, um, share favorite politicians, but who share space and share an interest in books. And I think it's actually more and more important to have these conversations in spaces like that. So thank you for for holding that kind of space and, and having me. I would say the, the Persuaders is a book uh, that is trying to answer a question. I think a lot of people listening to this from various points of view will have, which is there are large and passionate desires for change right now in America, change of all kinds. And yep. if you're listening to this, I imagine you share in some of those desires for change, right? You look at the kind of costs of housing you might be dealing with and you say, something's got to change. You look at politicians trying to overturn your will in elections and you may think that needs to change. We got to do something about that. You may look at trade with China and feel like your community has been totally wiped out by kind of willy-nilly decisions that didn't really consider what it was like uh, to live where you live. You may feel like those are things that need to change. You may want uh, the you know history of race and gender in this country and the realities of people who are not included for too long, uh, those things to change. I think we live in an era of, of extraordinary demands for change and real honest conversation about those things. I think when all of us were growing up, certainly when our parents were growing up, a lot of those things were more suppressed. Um, we're living in an age of open, you know, passionate demands for change. However, we're not living in an age of change. <laughs> we're just living in an age of demands for change, of hunger and appetite for change. And so I have been interested, I think, throughout my books in the theme of change and in, in the possibility of change. And in this book, I set out to understand why it is that there is so much we want. We want a world of nice things. Some of us want different nice things than other people, but, but we all kind of want a better world for our kids and a country that works better than it's working now. And we can't get it. We can't have these nice things. I set out to talk to a bunch of people who I think can help explain to us why we have gotten so stuck in a politics that makes change impossible because it sorts us into us and them. It demonizes people who are currently on the different side of an issue from you. And it freezes everything in this kind of like perma freeze of political stasis. And I became interested in a bunch of people who say, no, that can't be our future. If you want to save electoral democracy, if you want to change 
how people live. You want to have a better healthcare system. If you want schools to be better, whatever your thing is, mm-hmm. you need to change minds. You need to refuse a cultural tendency that has really risen to the fore in America over the last many years, which is a tendency to assume people will never change. Mm-hmm. The people on the other side of the issue from me, they just are who they are. They're always going to think like that. People like them always think like that. It's not worth it. I'm just going to rally my faithful. I'm going to preach to my choir. I'm going to mobilize my voters. No, it doesn't work. If you want to change this country, if you want a better life for your kids in this country, if you want to live in a thriving multiracial liberal democracy in the future, you have to reinvest in the idea of persuasion, of changing minds, of moving people. And Mm-hmm. I believe it's important to do that without selling your soul, without mm-hmm. without giving up on what you believe, without compromising yourself to a place of nothingness. And so this is a book about how you can stand bravely in your truth mm-hmm. as a person who believes things in the world and reach out to people, reach out to those family members who disagree with you, reach out to people in your community who disagree with you, reach out in politics and organizing to people who are skeptical and refuse to give up on your fellow citizens. Part of it is meeting people where they are. I mean, it's a tenant of harm reduction. It's uh, That's a phrase that's been used in other communities as well, but meeting people where they are and being able to say, okay, let's tell a story. Story is a really big part of organizing, and I don't think people always recognize that. If you recognize someone else's humanity, if you hear and have empathy, for someone else's experience, a lot can happen. So can we talk about challenges to persuasion for a second? Because you do sort of open the book. There's a lot happening. Nuance is difficult on social media. We know this. Wow, it is hard on social media. But nuance has also become really difficult in a lot of other spaces as well. So let's lay out some of the challenges in general to persuading folks. Yeah. I mean, the book is exploring people who who do and who, who do persuasion and figure it out and believe in persuasion. Mm-hmm. And it starts by saying they are renegades standing here in 2022. They are swimming upstream because the stream, uh, the dominant flow right now is what I would call an anti-persuasive culture. It takes all kinds of forms, right? When, when you hear someone saying, let's just mobilize drive turnout on our side in an election because we're never going to change anybody's minds. When you hear people saying those people never get, are never going to get the vaccine, they just think that. By the way, a whole bunch of those people who said no to the vaccine and ended up getting the vaccine. You know, a whole bunch of people who voted uh, for Trump the first time did not vote for him the second time. People do, in fact, change their minds. But that kind of culture shows up when you have activist groups or organizing groups that have these beautiful visions of racial progress or gender progress, but then kind of sometimes feel more like a club that's hard to get into instead of a church where anybody can come. And I think this anti-persuasive style or culture comes from a bunch of different forces. You mentioned social media, that and others. And I want to be clear, it comes from a mix of good and bad things. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. like social media definitely encourages the view that if someone disagrees with you, you should dunk on them instead of try to convert them. Like, it's just interesting. If you actually just stop and think about it, people who think differently from you are potential customers. If you want a certain kind of world, not the most extreme people on the other side who are like burning things and shooting things in their backyard against your values. Mm -hmm. Forget that. 
but there's a whole bunch of other people who just don't feel what you feel right now, don't see what you see, don't think what you think. And a bunch of them are basically customers who haven't yet bought your product, mm-hmm. right? Your product being an idea in this case. Yeah. And social media basically says you should dunk on those people. Mm-hmm. You should quote, tweet, shame them instead of pull them in. So social media is a big part of it. You know, we, we also live in an era of divide and conquer billionaire owned media. Rupert Murdoch and others have, have, have come uh, to make their fortunes on dividing us against each other, dividing people listening to this podcast against other people mm-hmm. listening to this podcast, book lovers against book lovers, so that he can re- you know rake in more profits, mm-hmm. right? And profit from some of our outrage against others of our outrage and others of our outrage against some of our outrage. But there's also more good things going on that explain a more inflammatory culture. And it's worth mentioning those. We live in an age in which marginalized people of all kinds have voice through social media once again, but also just socially um, in ways that have made the culture angrier and more inflammatory. And that's good. It wasn't that it wasn't that it was really great to be a black person before there was black Twitter. It's just the black Twitter created an opportunity for like millions of people to say what it's like to be them in a way that everyone else can watch and hear. And some of that stuff was kept in the family or kept in communities and now is visible, right? It's not like women were, you know, never mansplained to in meetings until the word mansplained was coined. It's just that there's been these shifts in law, policy, culture, and social media where that can be called out. And so that's really good. We want that stuff called out. Like, it, it's not that, you know, uh, the left was, you know, pr- progressives were kind of totally fine with how the Democratic Party was until Bernie came along. It, it was a very, very long winter. It's just that there's kind of more of a demand for accountability. A lot of the failures of the last many years in this society have have emboldened all kinds of people to say, not OK, not OK, not OK. And so that's in the bloodstream, too. And that sometimes leads to a place of don't bother with those people. Right. And so I want to make something very, very clear yeah. as, as this book comes into the world, which is that this is not a book saying we all need to t- turn down the temperature and love each other. I actually think anger is fine in politics. It's good. It's, I, I think a certain amount of inflammation is normal in politics. Like we are talking about how to resolve trade-offs between your kids and my kids, between this generation and the next generation, between people who live in low-lying areas and people who live in high-lying areas, between people who whose ancestors were here 10 generations ago and people whose ancestors got here five generations ago and people who got here five minutes ago and got here in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's going to get real. Like, I'm a political theory before I became a journalist and writer, like I'm a political philosophy person. Like that's what I studied, right? This stuff's not supposed to be chill, right? Like this is supposed to be real. We are haggling over the future and limited resources and limited space and time and power. And coalitions are hard. And coalitions are hard. And they're meant to be hard because everybody's giving something up. So mm-hmm. I don't have an aesthetic problem with conflict mm-hmm. in politics. Right. My beef is with the idea that if you are trying to change things, you can somehow 
sustain that dream while giving up on the idea of changing people. My concern is not with the level of anger and vitriol in our politics. It's with the level of fatalism yep. in our politics. What I became hopeful about and then mm -hmm. tried to bring the hope to others in, in the persuaders is a group of these persuaders, organizers, activists, educators, others, who just refuse this notion that there's nothing you can do. They don't believe everybody's reachable. They, I think most of the people I read about believe that about 25% of the country has gone in directions that are kind of not accessible to them. But they believe that a lot more people who are decent people, don't necessarily think about politics all day long, many of you listening to this, might not in fact eat, sleep, breathe politics all day long. More people than we realize are works in progress, are right. trying to figure out a way to think about the world, have contradictory feelings. As Beyonce said in her new album, they're contradicted. They're internally contradicted. More of us than we think. We can make the kind of change we seek, we deserve in this country if we allow the idea that more of us are contradicted, more of us need help sorting through the world, and we have the patience, we can muster that kind of patience right. and love to help people sort through how they see the world. Cynicism is so easy, and I keep hearing more and more cynicism in discourse in ways where I'm just like, you know, that's just simple and clever, and it's a good quip. But if you really believe that, what are you giving up to say, I'm going to be the cool kid in the corner and I'm just going to say, mm, yeah, not for me. Like, y'all do whatever you're going to do kind of thing. And that fatalism that you're talking about combined with cynicism is really going to get us in a bad place. I totally agree. And, and what's interesting is this conversation is happening in all kinds of corners. Like, I feel we're at a turning and I feel like The Persuaders is one book in a much broader conversation, trying to like force this turning right now. I feel the culture, the cultural tide of the last many years has been in this direction of writing off and, and fatalism. And I feel like there's this effort to turn. I, I'm read you a tweet that I saw yesterday. Okay. Right? It was from a kind of leftist democratic socialist of America type person. And what's interesting is I see this version of this argument among all kinds of people, right? But this is one example. I've said it before, the, 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 the tweet handle is scholarly spoon. I've said it before, but most of the convulsive flailing about you see on here, Twitter, specifically has to do with people not knowing whether or not they want to be part of a concrete organized struggle for political power or remain part of a subcultural terrain that specializes in sneering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is true, whether you're on the right or you're on the left, or you're moderate or progressive, whatever, you, however you identify, a lot of us every day, when we go online, when we log on, when we deal with people, we have that basic choice. Wait, are we actually trying to have more people rallied around whatever we want than we're rallied around it yesterday? Or are we getting dopamine hits from dunking on people who think the wrong thing and are at some level, are we kind of satisfied to have our movement not grow in order to get those dopamine hits? Like, I think at some very deep level, there is a choice of like, do you want the dopamine rush and keeping your movement small? Or are you willing to like not get the dopamine rush and grow your movement? 
There's also a vulnerability to organizing and using your story and the story of your community to call people in. And that is something that not everyone's willing. That's a lot of hard work. And let's be clear, and someone in your book says this too, the movement is not therapy. And the idea that there are people in the world who think that this kind of work, that this kind of organizing and this kind of heavy lifting in our communities is therapy is wild to me. I had not even ever thought about that for a second until I read it in the book. And I was like, oh no, this, oh no. The idea that we can be invested in a really earnest, empathetic way, I think is a lot it's hard for a lot of us right now because isn't it easier to just be kind of cool and calm and, you know, dunking on people and whatever, whatever you want to call it, rather than saying, hey, I have stakes in this. I care about what happens next. I mean, we just, we've, we've gotten to a place in our culture where we're just all kind of cross-eyed and a little rude. And I'm not calling for civility. I just really want to be clear about that. I think we use civility to bash people over the head all the time. I just think we have to be honest and open and really speak to our own experiences. I mean, there's a lot of fear right now. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of job insecurity. There's a lot happening. And yet everyone's sort of in their corner going, mm, mm, you're wrong. Yeah. And, and I want to be very clear. I think the way you're being very clear, the work of attempting to persuade, yep. particularly when it comes to people who don't believe in your humanity, this is not work anybody is required to do. This is not work I'm encouraging anybody to do. I think it is work that some number of us are going to have to bite the bullet and do. Frankly, a very small minority of us, right? Um, we got 350 million people here. We're talking about, in, in terms of that, like door-to-door, deep, talking to the enemy thing, we got thousands of people need to do it. Hundreds of thousands of people need to do it. If a million people signed up, to do it, it would be a absolute game changer, right? That's kind of one of my goals for the books to get people to sign up. But that leaves most people saying, that's not for me. Great, right? Loretta Ross, one of the people I profile in the book says, do the work that works for you. Do the work that works for you. No one is asking, no one is asking black, black people to go talk to angry white people. No one is asking gay people to go talk to homophobes. Like, however, in all these communities, there are some people who want to do this, right? And I write about some of the people who want to do it, all of whom say, you don't have to do it. There's no need to do it. Just some of us need to do it, right? And let me tell you about some of these kind of stories, right? There's this experiment that I write the closing chapter of the book about called deep canvassing. And this is really something, if you're interested in listening to this, I would encourage people, this is something you can do, right? We're always looking for things we can do. Google deep canvassing. You can go get trained in like a month couple couple hours here and there, you know, over uh, the computer and go go out and do this. Deep canvassing grew out of uh, the gay rights movement losing marriage in California on the night Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, an otherwise very optimistic night that for that movement was a utter dejection. And the geography of where they lost was astonishing to them. They lost L.A. County, like Los Angeles County in 2008, voted against gay people being able to marry. Like, it's insane to even I hear that now, right? Large parts of San Francisco. And so there was this moment um, that folks described to me in the book where they were like, this is not like Mitch McConnell hating us from a distance. This is not some people in Alabama not wanting us to be free. 
Like this is the, someone at the grocery store. Like I'm sitting there like looking at lemons in the grocery store and the people around, like some of the people around me think I'm not a person. Wow. That was a revelation. And what some number of them going out of the LA LGBT center, some of them with a kind of organizing background were like, I want to go talk to these people. Right. And you could say, maybe these are the wild ones who like actually wanted to do that because maybe it's more normal to just not do that, which would probably be me. But some of them went and started talking and it was informal at first. And what it developed into over time, once it was kind of systematized and turned into a protocol was a remarkable process of kind of live action, mind changing that was based on, let me go hear how you feel about this issue of gay rights to start with. And people would say how they felt. And some people felt, you know, kind of bland about it. Some people hadn't thought about it. Some people had a bucket full of prejudices. They started unloading at the door. This is not traditional canvassing. This where you, you know, you, you bounce after three minutes. Like they were there half an hour, 40 minutes. Give me your bile. You got more bile? Give me more bile. You got any more bile about, you know, gay people? Let's bring it up. And then what these canvassers learned to do was not say, was not rebut was not like, okay, I've heard your bile. Allow me to give you, you know, my perspective on why gay people are actually people. Uh, that doesn't work. What worked was to find different ways in to surfacing potential cognitive dissonance, potential contradiction, internal contradiction that person might have. And there are different roads to do that. One was to say, do you know any people like that? Right. And, and over these last many years, we were entering the phase where a lot of Americans were against gay people in general, but like had the coworker, had the, had the child. Right. That's been one of the big shifts of the last many years. And so a lot of people said yes to that. Does the thing you said about that group in general, is that true of Bob, who you just mentioned? And often it was not, in fact, true of Bob. And so something started to crack there or a kind of universalizing of a gay experience being being shut out being treated badly because of something you can't control. Have you ever felt that? And people who didn't necessarily claim to know any gay people, almost everybody had felt that second thing. Yeah, have I been have I been have I been shut out because of something beyond my control? Yeah, I have. How did that feel? What did that happen? When did that happen? And I've watched videos of it. I've seen it live and in person on on immigration you start to see people going, like really having these mental breakthroughs. And in this age of polarization, it is so refreshing to see this. It's real. Like, are there real homophobes out there who would exterminate all gay people if they could? Absolutely. And this ain't gonna work on them. And this is not for them. And that's a significant slice of this country. And it's probably better to not go to their door. But is there another block after them that often votes with those people, but are, but is not the same as those people. Yes, and who are they? They're the one. They're contradicted, as Beyonce would say. They're the ones who don't like gay people in general, but like Bob. They're the ones who don't like gay people in general, but think it's wrong to shut people out because of forces beyond their control. They're the ones who don't like gay people in general, but want to feel like they fight for the little guy, for the disenfranchised, and these patient people at the door not lying about why they're there. They're being honest about why they're there. Not like adding to the homophobia by any means, but just eliciting, surfacing the contradictions and starting to help people process their own dissonance. 
So you said that, but you said this, you said that, but you said this. This experiment, uh, which now works on immigration, works on trans rights, works on all kinds of things, uh, undocumented rights, has shown a peer-reviewed study, uh, has shown a peer-reviewed ability to uh, move people's minds as much as a decade, as years of natural social change, of the effects of watching TV and just you know, breathing in, shifting public mores, half an hour on the door can move a significant number of people as much as 10 years of like watching Will and Grace and, you know, getting to know a couple co-workers. I mean, you're talking about human connection. You're talking about story, the thing that brings us together, even when we think it's keeping us, you know, as far apart as we can go. I mean, the whole thing about the persuaders that I really, really appreciated was the fact that you can hold two contradictory ideas in two hands at the same time. It's, it doesn't have to be either or. And I think we've lost that, almost lost that ability entirely to be able to say, I, this can be true and this can be true. And somehow we can figure out what the next piece of it is. Totally. And, and one of the, my favorite quotes in the book is from a guy named Steve DeLine, who was one of the people involved in this early deep canvassing in LA. And he said, what I've taken away from this work, and he's not done this for years and years, is that most people are 60, 40 yep. about most things. And I just want to dwell on that for a second, because what does it mean to be 60, 40, right? You almost think about having a stance in the world, an opinion about whether gay people should be able to marry, an opinion about whether we should have reparations in this country, an opinion about who should be allowed to play women's sports, right? Take an issue. And you have a stance with your friends, on social media, if you're writing a book, you, you have like, most of us end up with one kind of point of opinion in the world, right? It's not, it's not customary for people to show up in the world and say, well, here's the reasons I think trans women should play sports and here's why they shouldn't, right? M most of us generally push it to a point and like we come out mm -hmm. with a point. But to be 60-40 means like there was a contest in you. One side won. It was not a it was not a blowout. There was another side that you also felt it lost your in the, the kind of internal struggle for your soul. And you now show up in the world with the 60% position, which the world reads as your 100% position, because you don't mention the 40% position. You, you kind of end up having this kind of unitary stance. And I think one of the core points of the book that comes out through a lot of different subjects is we know this to be true about ourselves, right? I mean, you're sitting in front of a whole bunch of books. Like mm -hmm. those authors have points of view and they also feel the opposite of certain points of view and they have struggled with those points of view. But they, but they, at the end of the day, you commit to the sentence you're writing. We know that about ourselves. We know that we feel this, but we also kind of feel that we we have doubt about how we show up. We say a thing and then we wonder if the opposite of the thing we said, we know that about ourselves. We, I think we know that about people we love. We grant that humanity to people we love. I know my wife's stances in the world and I know which of them keep her up at night, trouble her. That's part of our love. But I think what happens when the love is drained away and it's people the furthest from you is that we flatten them into being people who, who cannot possibly be 60, 40 on anything, who must be hundred to zero. We see the outward stance 
and then assume it's kind of turtles all the way down. Like it's just, that's just the whole opinion. That's the whole of them. And I get it. I'm someone who I think does that. Unfortunately, also, uh, I kind of look at the way folks vote on things or the way folks, uh, remark people may say, or, and I just think like, that's who they are. And it's just, it's no more true for them than it is for you. They're, they too, many of them, not all of them, are probably 60, 40 mm-hmm. around a whole bunch of things. People who may be really, really animated about fearing a Southern invasion on the border, mm-hmm. right? And whose, and whose words on that may really be difficult for you to hear. It doesn't mean that's a hundred to zero position. Just because they're, just because the position that they're expressing is toxic doesn't make it, doesn't mean there's an absence of doubt in them or an absence of contradiction. And so I kind of, there's this phrase that I, that I learned while, while working on the book that I think really resonated with me about how these persuaders I'm writing about, how these organizers think about the people they're approaching, which is strong opinions lightly held. Right. And I think my general assumption over these years in America has been that we're dealing with a lot of strong opinions strongly held. And I think the absolute breakthrough for me in learning at, you know, from these persuaders was, no, no, no. There, there are some people absolutely who have strong opinions strongly held, a significant number of people on all sides. But there is a significant number of people who have strong opinions lightly held. And that that's the opportunity. The other thing, too, that I think it's easy to forget is that narrative, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, prose, poetry, whatever you want to call it, narrative represents change. It is tracking change. There's either a change in a state of being, there's a change in a character, there's a change. Narrative represents change. So, I mean, we're sitting and I'm sitting in a studio (laughs) that's representing change, all of these narratives behind me whether they're fiction or non, certainly the persuaders, certainly winners take all. You're representing change in people, in states, in systems. And when I say states, I mean states of being, not necessarily like a physical Massachusetts or something like that. But how did writing in the persuaders change you? What have you taken away from this book? That's great. Well, let me say two things about that. First of all, I, I love the way you frame that because I think in, if I look at my whole career, and this is my fourth book, you know, I think change has been my big subject. Absolutely. In many ways, and India Calling, my first book was about what happens when massive social, economic, uh, kind of globalization, these big forces land in one of the oldest, most undisturbed cultures on earth, right? Unlike China, India, you know, comparable size, comparable ancient civilization, but China had a revolution and disturbed a lot of those cultural practices and made itself new in certain ways. India never had a revolution of that Mm -hmm. kind. Um, And so when, you know, India opened up to the world in the nineties and globalized and, you know, shock financial capitalism and a bunch of different things all at once, also while doing massive government programs of social engineering to lift up downtrodden castes, all kinds of things at once. I often say India did the new deal and the Reagan revolution at the same time um, in the nineties and two thousands people suddenly, without really having chosen it, were experiencing change. And some people experience this as tailwind. Wow, I can finally achieve my dreams and become the kind of person I can be. Women experiencing a freedom that, you know, Indian women, thousands of years of history have never experienced. 
um, lower caste people, some, some of them being lucky enough to avail of opportunities. And a lot of other people being like, what is this new world? What are the new values? Who am I? Right. And so it was actually being a foreign correspondent in India for the New York Times mm-hmm. that I really experienced this notion of whether the changes happening are good or bad in some objective way. A lot of people are going to experience them as a headwind and some people will experience them as a tailwind, but psychological transitions are hard. And I think in many ways, psychological transitions as it relates to change has, has been my subject. The True American book, second book, is about, you know, immigrants' dreams and those kind of dreams of changing your yourself and your life. And then, you know, on the other side, this kind of white supremacist who who experienced, once again, change, demographic change, change you and I might call progress as a kind of, wait, who am I? Who am I in the new world that's coming, right? And the difficulties of that and the violence that grows out of that. Winners take all was about fake change and us being offered forms of change, pseudo change that that contradict what we know to be real change. Mm-hmm. And and this book, I think at the heart of it, it's about how we actually make real change by bringing more people in. But I think you pointed to a kind of stealthier undercurrent of change in there, which is it is also a book again about psychological transitions. Right. And what I would say is for those of us who want a world of more inclusion, mm-hmm. more prosperity for all, a bigger we who want a liberal democracy that that counts everyone and includes everyone. We, I think we are fighting for the right world. However, mm-hmm. I think we are abjectly failing to manage the psychological transitions required by the changes we seek. And what I mean by that is we have just kind of stipulated that the world we require, we want, requires men to be very different than they were in the past. An agenda, by the way, as a man that I completely support. Can't happen fast enough. I'm trying to be one of those new men. Many of the men I know, the good ones, are also trying to, right? But we're asking to, for, to, to, for a world in which women can flourish. We have to, men have to be totally different. From the way even our the best of our dads and grandfathers, yep. right? Yep. For people of color to feel whole in the spaces they are, to, to, to deliver the best work they can do, to be the fullest people they can be. We are living in a moment which we're talking about white people needing to become aware of race, think about race, think about the effect they may have on others in a way that their parents and grandparents were never expected mm-hmm. to know the terms. And I think sometimes those of us who want these changes have completely lowballed what we are asking of people, mm. what we're rightfully asking of people. But we are rightly right now asking millions of people to make themselves new, to live through the kinds of psychological transitions that I chronicled in India when you suddenly yeah. let globalization in without making a PSA about it. And I think we've just hoped that people will figure it out, hoped that men will figure out how to be the new kind of man, whatever that is. Hope that white people will learn to account for their whiteness. However you do that, if you have no training to do that or think about Mm -hmm. it, just go find some books, you know? So when I think about my own evolution from this writing is I think I have participated in that kind of culture of just kind of saying like, this is the end state. This is the goal, a more inclusive, you know, let's call it like woke future, because I don't think that's a bad word. I think it's a Mm. great word. It's much better than being asleep. Let's just articulate 
that kind of world. And I think what I learned from these characters, who are, by the way, not wishy-washy, milquetoast, oh, you know, no. <laughs> th th these are all people, the people I'm writing about have big, real demands. They want to change things for real. I'm talking about organizers like Alicia Garza. I'm talking about uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm talking about Anat Schenker Osorio, messaging consultant. I'm talking about this deep canvassing and others. They all want real powerful things. But I think even what they, what I felt corrected by, yeah. just listening to them and immersing okay. myself in their work is saying, oh, it's not enough to just articulate and kind of demand the future and then tell people to just show up you know, right. when they're, when they're ready, when they're baked, when they get all the terms, it is on us who want that world because that world is optional. Mm -hmm. right? Like the world could go in all kinds of ways. Right. If you want that kind of world, it is on us to say, we're going to have to walk people into that world. We're going to have to show tens of millions of men. And I know this is controversial because women will say, it's not my work to show. And, and I agree with that. And I think a lot of men are going to have to do this work for other men. But when men fail to make the transition from old ideas of masculinity to the new kind, women are the obviously first victims of it. And on that issue of gender in particular, most right. households in this country have people of different genders in them, right? Mm -hmm. Not true of race, the, the, the way in which yeah. race and gender are different, right? But like every man who we have failed to migrate to newer ways of being mm -hmm. is dragging women down one way or another is making those women's lives harder. And I don't think it is working to say, just call us when you've done the work. I think this is a collective undertaking. And I think it's true on race and it's true on any number of things. We have to accept uh, the difficulty of making psychological transitions as a collective responsibility, a collective project and approach it with thick skin, with love, and only if you want to. We got to call people in. We've got to call people in. And I think the Persuaders is a really good place to start. So Anand Girdardis, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. And I really, really hope that people come to the Persuaders with an open mind and an open heart because it's a really good combination. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.